Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of June 18th, 2022, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And if it's June 18th, that means that it's one day before June 19th. Yeah, this Sunday, which is going to witness the presidential runoff election in Colombia, which one way or another is going to be historic. As listeners are probably aware, in an unprecedented development, two political outsiders or populists, so-called, made it to the runoff in the first round on May 29th, while no candidate from the country's traditional and long-entrenched political parties prevailed. And one of these two candidates, as we shall see, is a left populist, and in fact a former guerrilla leader, and the other is a right populist in the style of Trump or Duterte of the Philippines. Now, I've been closely following events in Colombia since I was there 20 years ago at the worst part of the war, and I've been very frustrated by the lack of interest in what's going on there. The overwhelming majority of the ongoing political violence in Colombia gets no coverage in English, apart from sometimes action alerts from Amnesty International and the like. And I'm actually doing the hard work of going through the accounts in the Colombian media and producing detailed digests in English to very little attention from anyone. There is an English-language website based in Bogota, Colombia Reports, which does good ongoing coverage, but in terms of media outside Colombia, very little interest. Now, occasionally, I can place a story on Colombia in actual paying media. Next week, I should have a report on the ongoing eradication of coca and cannabis crops in Colombia on the Cannabis Now website. You can look for it at CannabisNow.com. But it's mostly work that I do essentially for free, apart from the small trickle of donations on my own website, Counter Vortex. But uh, let me ask you all, did you ever read 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. You know, I'm not much for fiction, but there are a few novels I've read, mostly in my youth, and mostly, I confess, hoary old classics like 100 Years of Solitude that have made a very deep impression on me, and that is definitely one of them. And I've come to identify rather frighteningly closely with one of the main characters, Colonel Aureliano Buendia the obsessive revolutionary who, after 32 unsuccessful armed uprisings, becomes disillusioned, retreats from the world, and for years spends each day alone in his study, crafting exquisite little fish of gold, only to melt each one down when finished and start again. That's what I feel like writing these exacting reports I produce regularly that I don't get paid for, and nobody reads. So I am going to uh, read aloud here the four reports 
I produced over the past week and change on Columbia in hopes of winning a wider audience and uh, generating some attention for the rather desperate crisis in that country, which is nonetheless pregnant with possibilities for positive change as never before. I'll be adding a little interspersed annotation, and I'll be starting with the elections, then going over the horrific human rights situation in the country and the ongoing armed conflict, and ending with a look at how all this fits in to the uh, world geopolitical context. But uh, a little background first. When I was in Colombia 20 years ago, the uh, conflict was worse than it is today, but less complicated. You basically had three significant blocks of armed actors. The leftist guerrillas, the FARC, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, and the ELN, National Liberation Army, the rightist paramilitaries, then united under the umbrella of the AUK, United Colombian Self-Defense Forces, and the government. The FARC and the ELN were rivals, but they generally avoided fighting each other. The paramilitaries emerged as an anti-guerrilla militia force of the big landowners, and later developed ties both to the drug cartels and the official security forces, with whom they would often cooperate and even overlap, despite being officially outlawed. The two big drug cartels were then the famous Medellin cartel and the Cali cartel, but they were already in decline following a DEA-led campaign against them. However, as we shall see, they've merely been replaced by a more decentralized network of regional and rival trafficking networks. And similarly, <laughs> the two big, long-entrenched political parties were the liberals and the conservatives, both parties of the right, I must emphasize. Liberal in this context being a reference to classical 19th century liberalism, laissez-faire economics, etc., pretty much the opposite of what liberal means in the United States. Now, Colombia's two-party system has also become somewhat fragmented in the ensuing years, but most of the new parties are offshoots of the two old ones, and what we are seeing at this moment is a much more complete break with the traditional party system. Basically, the right has been in power continuously over those past 20 years. It's just been alternating between the hard right, like Alvaro Uribe, who was in power back then, and the moderate right of his successor, Juan Manuel Santos, and then with his successor, the hard right again, under the incumbent Ivan Duque, whose term is about to end. And the most significant development over this period, of course, has been the peace process. First, the AUK, laid down arms and demobilized, the official term, in 2006, although there were paramilitary factions that refused demobilization and remained in arms. And then under Santos, the FARC, which had waged an insurgency since the 1960s, laid down arms and demobilized in 2016. And Santos won the Nobel Peace Prize that year, but again, there were FARC factions that refused demobilization and remained in arms, called dissident factions in Colombia. 
And in addition, the ELN guerrillas also remain in arms. And under Duque, the implementation of the reforms demanded by the 2016 peace accords, which he blatantly opposed, has basically ground to a halt, and things are again deteriorating. As we shall see, the human rights situation is getting worse, and the internal war is again escalating. But this time, it's a much more complicated, multi-factional situation on the ground. Again, as we shall see. So off we go. You're about to hear the four stories that I wrote this week, providing probably the most in-depth coverage of the human rights and military situation, at least in Colombia, available in English. And I can say that with pretty fair confidence. So, forthwith, one, Colombia, pending presidency between two populisms. Following a first round of presidential elections, May 29th, between two populisms is the catchphrase being used by Colombia's media for an unprecedented moment. A pair of political outsiders are to face each other in the June 19th runoff. Outsiders in quotation marks. Gustavo Petro, a former guerrilla leader and Colombia's first leftist presidential contender, versus Rodolfo Hernandez, a construction magnate whose pugnacious swagger inevitably invites comparison to Donald Trump. Hernandez, an independent candidate and the former mayor of Bucaramanga, rose precipitously in an ostensibly anti-establishment campaign driven by social media, winning him the epithet King of TikTok. But Colombia's political establishment is now lining up behind him to defeat Petro. The former mayor of Bogota and a veteran of the demobilized M-19 guerrillas, yet a third leftist guerrilla force, which laid down arms in 1990, Petro is the candidate of a new progressive coalition, Colombia Humana, emphasizing multiculturalism and ecology, as well as more traditional social justice demands. Early polling, it favored former Medellin mayor Federico Fico Gutierrez, running on the ticket of Equipo por Colombia, a coalition of the country's more traditional political parties, including the once hegemonic conservatives and liberals. But he was overtaken by the upset surge for Hernandez. Despite railing against official corruption, Hernandez himself is under criminal investigation by the prosecutor general's office for allegedly intervening as Bucaramanga mayor, in a garbage collection contract to benefit a company that his son had lobbied for. Hernandez, of course, says the accusations were trumped up to derail his presidential bid. But Hernandez has faced other scandals. In 2019, he resigned as mayor after being censured by the prosecutor general for improper participation in politics while in office, he also got in hot water for slapping a city council member and calling him a Io de puta, son of a whore, 
he has openly called himself a, quote, follower of Adolf Hitler, end quote, and says he will declare a state of emergency if elected. On the ongoing armed conflict and narco violence, Hernandez says he will take a, quote, zero impunity approach to crime and beef up the security forces to retake areas, quote, where armed actors exercise political and territorial control, end quote. Petro, in contrast, would reform the security forces and purge their leadership at the highest levels, do away with military conscription, and revise the national security doctrine. He says the war on drugs has been a failure and calls for refocusing enforcement efforts from peasant producers and low-level couriers to the financial and business sectors that facilitate trafficking and launder the proceeds. Violence and irregularities. While Colombia's electoral observation mission, MO, ultimately said the polls passed muster for legitimacy, the MO reported over 400 possible irregularities. The Defensoria del Pueblo, the official human rights monitor, reported that 521 of Colombia's 1,123 municipalities were vulnerable to violence that could interfere with the vote, especially naming the departments of Cauca, Nariño, and Choco. And I am pointedly saying departments because Colombia does not have states. Contrary to the ubiquitous error in the sloppy reportage in the gringo media, federal systems such as the United States and Mexico and Venezuela have states, which have their own police forces, their own judiciaries, and their own legislatures. Centralized systems such as France and Colombia have departments which have none of those powers, okay? Just to clear that up. So, especially naming the departments of Cauca, Nariño, and Choco. In Vista Hermosa, Meta Department, poll worker Nelly Bedoya Vasquez was killed, apparently by a dissident faction of the FARC guerrillas. In the Montes de Maria region of Bolivar and Sucre departments, community leaders reported that the Clan del Golfo criminal network was threatening campaign workers with the Pacto Histórico, the broader coalition of Colombia Humana and other parties supporting Petro's candidacy. Immigration authorities also appeared to interfere with the entry of election observers. Three were deported while two were barred entry to the country at the Bogota airport and only allowed to proceed following intervention by the MO, the Electoral Observation Mission. Death Threats Against Petro After launching his candidacy last year, Gustavo Petro began receiving death threats, and these only escalated as the campaign proceeded. In early May, there were reports that a criminal band known as La Cordillera had hired three sicarios, or paid assassins, to kill Petro at a campaign stop in Dos Quebradas, Rizaralda Department. 
Petro's running mate, Francia Marquez, an Afro-Colombian environmental campaigner from Cauca, reported that pamphlets threatening her with death were signed by the Aguilas Negras paramilitary group, the Black Eagles, were appearing around the country. She called on incumbent president Ivan Duque to take measures to assure her protection. In the wee hours of April 11th, the Bogota offices of the Petro Marquez campaign were breached by unknown intruders who broke windows and overturned furniture. Other controversies. One of Petro's most prominent supporters, Piedad Cordoba, a longtime leader of Colombia's left, recently elected to a senatorial seat, was detained by authorities in Panama on May 25th, accused of attempting to fly out of the country with $68,000 in undeclared cash. Petro has since been distancing himself from his longtime ally. Petro also won some unlikely support with his proposal for a social pardon, quote-unquote, a wider amnesty than that allowed under the current special justice system established by the peace process. Salvatore Mancuso, notorious patriarch of Colombia's far-right paramilitary movement, former commander of the AUK, issued a letter expressing his approval of the idea. Mancuso completed a prison term in the United States in 2020, but is still being held by U.S. authorities as he fights a Colombian extradition request. He has testified to Colombia's Peace and Justice Tribunal via video link from his prison cell in Atlanta, Georgia. And an interesting update, Rodolfo Hernandez implicates Gustavo Petro in assassination plot. This just from last Thursday, a few days after um, I wrote the piece I just read. Having fled to Miami, citing a supposed plot to kill him, Rodolfo Hernandez has now flipped and says he will return to Colombia. On Twitter, he accused Gustavo Petro of leading a, quote, criminal gang that is willing to do anything to get to power, end quote. So, uh, you know, this is a very Trumpian move, isn't it? Your supporters are actually making death threats against uh, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez, and apparently organizing an actual assassination plot. So you, Rodolfo Hernandez, just turn around and baselessly accuse Gustavo Petro and his people of doing the same thing. Very, very Trumpian move. Just completely contemptuous of the truth. Utterly cynical. Okay, on to the next story. Number two. Protest closing of ICC Columbia investigation. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, on June 2nd, released its 2021 annual report, revealing that Colombia has only partially adopted necessary measures to prevent human rights violations, both by its security forces and unofficial paramilitary groups. The report called on Colombia to, quote, adopt the appropriate measures for the members of the security forces, who are allegedly involved in cases of violations of human rights or international humanitarian law, to be suspended from active duty until a final decision is issued in the disciplinary or criminal proceedings in such cases. 
noting the reorganization and persistence of illegal armed groups on its territory. The report also called on Colombia to dismantle the armed groups that emerged after the demobilization of the paramilitary organizations or that continue to pursue the same objectives. End quote. On April 27th, a coalition of Colombian human rights groups and survivors organizations issued a statement decrying as shocking the decision by the International Criminal Court, ICC, to close its preliminary examination of possible war crimes carried out in the country. The preliminary examination, opened in June 2004, was formally closed in October 2021, after ICC Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan visited Colombia. Khan cited, quote, significant progress achieved by domestic prosecutorial and judicial entities in Colombia, end quote, and concluded a cooperation agreement with Bogota to assure that such progress continues. The statement in protest of Khan's move, jointly issued by the International Federation for Human Rights and the Bogota-based Jose Alviar Restrepo Lawyers Collective, said that closure of the examination, quote, could mean that hundreds or thousands of victims of crimes under the jurisdiction of the ICC will be deprived of knowing the truth and obtaining justice concerning the crimes committed. In Colombia, in spite of advances in some areas, there is still a systematic absence of investigation of those responsible at the highest levels for crimes under the jurisdiction of the ICC. End quote. On April 12th, the Movimiento Defendamos la Paz, or Defending Peace Movement, representing rights defenders and survivors, issued a statement in response to President Ivan Duque's address to the UN Security Council that day, charging that Duque, quote, has abandoned the peace agreement in its entirety, in violation of state commitments, fulfilling only parts that he and his ruling party consider acceptable. Colombia's 2016 peace accord with the FARC guerrillas established a special justice system for crimes related to the armed conflict and commits the government to stronger measures to protect human rights. Assassinations and impunity continue. The ongoing wave of assassinations of social leaders across Colombia shows no sign of abating. The June 9th slaying of Danilo de Jesus Madrid, a campesino human rights advocate in Taraza Pueblo, Antioquia Department, brought to 84 the number of social leaders assassinated in 2022, according to Independent Rights Monitor Indepaz. That stands for Instituto de Estudios para el Desarrollo y la Paz, the Institute for the Study of Development and Peace, based in Bogota. The organization counts 930 such assassinations under the government of Ivan Duque, who came to power in 2018. There have been prosecutions in very few of these cases. That was the second such assassination that week, following the June 6th slaying of Oscar Parada, 
an advocate for the LGBTQ community in Bogota. In other recent cases, two functionaries of the municipal government in the village of El Cerrito, Valle del Cauca Department, were slain by gunmen mounted on a motorcycle May 10th. In the San Vicente del Caguan region of Caquetá Department, local campesino leader Aldemar Urquina Cruz was killed May 7th. He had been president of the Communal Action Committee at the Vereda, or Hamlet, of Morocoy, El Doncheo Municipality. And um, the uh, Communal Action Committee, or Junta de Acción Comunal, is the, uh, the most localized unit of government in Colombia, you could say. It's actually kind of non-official. It's not really a part of the state, but they exist pretty much throughout the country. Those local campesino communities running their own affairs mostly concerned with, you know, apportioning lands and waters and that kind of thing, pooling monies to buy fertilizers and so on, and seed, and increasingly fighting for their lands against usurpers and monitoring the human rights situation in their territories. On May 3rd, Mauricio Fori Balanta, a local leader of the mixed syndicate of workers and public employees, was slain by gunmen on a motorcycle on the streets of Cali. He had been a member of the union's Human Rights Committee. Bleeding Cauca, the southwestern department of Cauca, has emerged as the most impacted by the violence and was hit especially hard by a wave of killings earlier this year. On March 21st, five youth were abducted and put to death by a local paramilitary group in the municipality of Argelia, Cauca. Richard Betancourt, president of the Communal Action Committee at the local Vereda of Santa Clara and a leader of Argelia's Campesino Guard, was also slain that day. The Campesino Guard being a uh, peasant patrol to defend their communities against the various armed actors and just bandits. There is also, as we shall see, an indigenous guard in indigenous communities. More about that later. Jose Futhenas Miller Correa, a leader at the NASA Indigenous Resguardo, or Reservation, of Taqueyo, Torobio municipality, was slain March 14th in an ambush on a local road. NASA community members, days later, blocked the Pan-American Highway to demand justice in his death. March 11th saw the slaying of Federico Torres Perlaza, mayor of Lopez de Mique municipality. Jose Euclides Gonzalez, a community leader in El Placer Vereda, Caloto municipality, was gunned down near his lands on February 1st. On January 29th, the lifeless body of Daisy Sotelo Anacona, a leader of Llano Alto Vereda in Argelia municipality, was discovered six days after she had been abducted from her home by armed men. Two days after the body was found, her husband, Herman Ortiz Luligo, was forcibly disappeared. 
On January 28th, the bodies of four local residents were found left at various points in the coastal municipality of Timbiqui. On January 24th, Albero Camayo Guetio, former coordinator of the Indigenous Guard in Las Delicias Resguardo, Buenos Aires municipality, was slain, apparently in retaliation for his efforts to expel paramilitary groups from the territory. On January 14th, a local youth, Brainer Kukunyamye, was killed, apparently during an incursion by dissident FARC guerrillas at Las Delicias. The rightist paramilitary networks appear to be behind most of the slayings. One, the notorious Aguilas Negras, has been openly leaving leaflets in public areas around Cauca, threatening local social leaders. The most recent such leaflet, stating, You have been warned, especially named progressive senator Feliciano Valencia and senator-elect Aida Kilche. Indigenous and campesino leaders targeted. Indigenous leaders are particularly marked for death around the country. On April 30th, Maria Jose Arciniegas Salinas, a young community leader of the Siona indigenous people, was slain at El Hacha Resguardo, Puerto Leguizamo municipality in Putumayo department near the border with Ecuador. The community named a local paramilitary group, the Commandos de Frontera, as behind the killing. Pedro Pandoro Coquinche, governor of El Bajo Ramanso Resguardo, also in Puerto Leguizamo, was assassinated on March 28th. Sarcelino Lana, governor of Tarmando Resguardo, in Choco Department, was slain March 29th, apparently by the Clan del Golfo criminal network. On February 27th, Dilsin Borja Domico, a leader of the local Embera Indigenous Guard, was killed in the town of Turbo, Antioquia, in Colombia's northern Gulf of Uruba region. Uruba is the principal stronghold of the Clan del Golfo and its associated paramilitary force, the Gaitanistas. On February 22nd, two legendary leaders of the Campesino struggle in the Magdalena Medio region were slain in a raid by gunmen at the home of a comrade in San Martin municipality, Cesar Department. Teofilo Acuña and Jorge Tafor of the Federación Agro Minera del Sur de Bolivar had been building an alliance of campesinos and artisanal miners in the region to press for land rights. The conflicted Magdalena Medio straddles the departments of Cesar and Bolivar. State complicity. On May 28th, the Colombian Commission of Jurists turned in a report to the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, entitled The Internal Enemy, documenting continued collusion between the ostensibly outlawed paramilitary networks and the official security forces. The report charges that there is a, quote, criminal structure made up of the organisms of state intelligence and the paramilitaries. 
which oversees the planning, execution, and cover-up of assassinations and disappearances of social leaders and human rights defenders. End quote. The document charges involvement by state agents in several high-profile killings over the past generation, including the 1999 assassination of comedian and peace advocate Jaime Garzon. And the report asserts that despite some progress since then with the demobilization of the AUK, the nexus between the state apparatus and the paramilitary groups has not been broken. Colombia's official human rights watchdog, the Defensoria del Pueblo, released figures in January, finding that 145 social leaders and rights defenders were assassinated in the country in 2021. The most impacted departments were Antioquia, with 24 such assassinations, and Cauca, with 22. Three, multi-sided warfare across Colombia. Despite a peace process that has faltered under President Ivan Duque, the internal war in Colombia continues nearly across the country, now involving multiple armed actors, remnant guerrilla groups, resurgent paramilitary forces, regional cartels, and the official security forces. Thousands have been displaced in recent months as Campesino and indigenous communities are either caught in the crossfire or explicitly targeted. Arauca, struggle for the borderlands. The year began with an upsurge of violence in Arauca Department on the eastern plains along the Venezuelan border, where various armed factions vie for control of smuggling corridors either side of the line. On January 4th, the office of the UN Secretary General expressed concern for the situation in Arauca and called for a ceasefire. That month, at least 50 were reported killed and some 1,500 displaced in Arauca and the adjacent Venezuelan state of Apore. According to local media accounts, a three-way conflict involves guerrilla forces of the National Liberation Army, ELN, and two dissident factions of the FARC that have remained in arms despite the peace deal, the 10th Front and the Segunda Marcatalia. And that is a reference to the village in Tolima Department of Marcatalia, where the FARC was officially formed in 1964. In response to um, non-compliance with the peace accords, these um, demobilized guerrillas returned to arms and launched the, the second Marcatalia, a rebirth of the FARC guerrilla movement in Colombia by implication of its name. On January 17th, when President Duque arrived in the border town of Arauquita to announce a new major operation against the guerrillas, ELN fighters were openly patrolling the streets. According to local media accounts, on April 10th, Duque announced the capture of the supposed commander of the 10th Front, Juan Gabriel Granados, a.k.a. Orlando La Muerte, in an operation in Via Vicencio Meta Department, further south on the Eastern Plains, his principal rival in the struggle for Arauca, ELN Eastern Warfront Commander Gustavo Anibal Quinchia, a.k.a. Pablito, remains at large. And the 10th Front remains active, 
On April 29th, the military announced that an airstrike in Arauca killed six 10th Front fighters, including the Front's new leader, Jaime Chukula. But community leaders in El Progreso Vereda, Puerto Rondon municipality, said those slain were actually local campesinos. Segundo Marcatalia commander Miguel Santania Botache, a.k.a. Gentil Duarte, was killed in an apparent bomb attack on his camp in Jesus Maria Semprun municipality in Venezuela's Zulia state on May 4th. A Segundo Marcatalia statement said he was killed in an operation by the Colombian army, implying a cross-border raid. Gentil Duarte had actually been a negotiator for the FARC at the Havana talks that led to the 2016 peace accord. Clan del Golfo stages armed strike. Dairo Antonio Usuga, a.k.a. Antoniel, leader of the Clan del Golfo cartel, who was arrested in October in the northern Gulf of Uruba region, was extradited to the U.S. on May 5th to face drug trafficking charges. To facilitate extradition, the Council of State lifted the precautionary measure in his case that had been requested by victims' organizations who wanted him to face justice within Colombia for human rights abuses. The extradition was approved by the Supreme Court of Justice. Otoniel pleaded not guilty at a federal court in Brooklyn, New York. But the Clan del Golfo responded to the extradition by staging an armed strike, a tactic usually employed by their guerrilla enemies. Violent protests swept through Uruba region and beyond, with scores of vehicles torched in 90 municipalities in nine of Colombia's 32 departments. The departments of Antioquia, Chocó and Córdoba were particularly affected. The government mobilized thousands of troops to put down the protest, which were led by the Klan's paramilitary wing, the Gaitanistas. But there was speculation that the government wanted Otoniel out of the country to silence him. In April, Otoniel had testified before Colombia's special jurisdiction for peace that he had met several times with then presidential candidate Luis Perez, ex-governor of Antioquia and ex-mayor of Medellin, to discuss paramilitary collaboration. On May 26th, authorities announced that fugitive clan operative Juan Castro, a.k.a. Matamba, who had escaped from La Picota Maximum Security Prison in Bogota in March, was killed in an operation in the town of Bolivar, Santander Department. Matamba was said to command a new paramilitary formation in the orbit of the Clan del Golfo, called the Cordillera Sur, presumably that same which had issued death threats against Gustavo Petro, or actually plotted to kill him, according to media accounts within Colombia. Mass displacement in Chocó, Chocó Department, which stretches from the Gulf of Uruba down the Pacific coast, has been the most impacted by the conflict in recent weeks. June has seen repeated clashes between government troops 
and Gaetanistas, including within the humanitarian zone of Nueva Vida in Cacarica municipality. This is an area declared by the local Afro-Colombian residents as off-limits to armed actors, which neither side is now respecting. On May 30th, residents of Emberacatillo indigenous communities in Carmen de Atrato municipality blocked the Medellin Quibdo Highway to protest the presence of armed actors on their lands. In recent weeks, hundreds of Emberacatillo residents had fled the zone amid interfactional fighting, with many seeking shelter from municipal authorities in Medellin. May 13th saw a massacre at the Embera Dobida indigenous resguardo of Peña Alta, Alto Baldo municipality, with three indigenous residents and an Afro-Colombian friend slain. The perpetrators remain unknown, but the area had recently seen fighting between Gaitanistas and the ELN. On March 23rd, the National Police acknowledged carrying out aerial bombardment of Clan del Golfo targets in the Uruba region of Chocó, reporting three deaths. And on June 8th, the social activist Jesusita Moreno Masquera, who had been advocating for a ceasefire between the warring factions in Chocó, was assassinated in an attack by unknown gunmen at the home of her son in Cali. Elsewhere around the country, localized conflict also persists in several other regions of Colombia. More than 6,000 have been displaced this year in southern Nariño department by interfactional fighting, especially in the Telembi Triangle area near the border with Ecuador. Doctors Without Borders is assisting local municipal authorities in providing shelter for those fleeing violence in outlying veredas, or hamlets. In northern Magdalena Department, over 150 killings are reported this year in a contest between the Clan del Golfo and a rival criminal network, Los Pachenca. Some 700 have been displaced in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Maria, the rugged mountain range that straddles the department overlooking the Caribbean coast. In Vegachi Municipality, Antioquia Department, Alconides Vallejo Alvarez, vice president of the Communal Action Committee at the Vereda of La Clarita, was killed in a national police operation against the Gaitanistas on May 25th. Controversy surrounds a March 28th military operation in Puerto Leguizamo, Putumayo Department, in the Amazon Basin along the Ecuador border. On that day, 11 people were killed by the armed forces in a raid on El Remanso Vereda. Duque and the Defense Ministry said that those neutralized, their word, were members of an unnamed illegal armed group. However, family members of the victims said that those killed were non-combatants. Minors and a pregnant woman were among the dead raising the possibility that this was a case of false positives, as they are called in Colombia, civilian deaths reported as combatant deaths. On February 5th, three brothers were killed by unknown gunmen 
at Diamante Vereda, also in Puerto Leguizamo. And amid all this, campesinos meet with deadly repression as they continue to struggle for justice over historical wrongs. On May 1st, a local NASA indigenous leader, Luis Antonio Tombe, was killed by national police during a protest for recovery of usurped lands in Cauca Department. The Hornada for Liberation of Mother Earth. Hornada, literally meaning a work day, but in this context meaning a um, day of mobilization. I didn't know how else to translate it. The Hornada for the Liberation of Mother Earth was taking place in a rural area of Corinto municipality. Two police officers have been suspended pending an investigation. And finally, four. Colombia joins new partnership with NATO. U.S. President Joe Biden issued an executive order May 23rd that designates Colombia as a major non-NATO ally, MNNA, of the United States under terms of the Foreign Assistance Act and the Arms Export Control Act. The designation will facilitate further weapons transfers from the U.S. to Colombia and increased military cooperation between the two countries. Colombia is now the third MNNA in Latin America after Brazil and Argentina. Other MNNAs include Egypt, Morocco, Israel, Jordan, Pakistan, Japan, South Korea, Thailand, the Philippines, Australia, and New Zealand. On May 2nd to 6th, a delegation of NATO staff visited Colombia to discuss with South American countries' participation in the alliance's Defense Education Enhancement Program, or DEEP. Colombia became NATO's newest global partner in 2018, but this relationship was reinforced last December when it became a member of the NATO Individually Tailored Partnership Program, ITPP. The announcement of Colombia's new ITPP partnership, issued jointly in Bogota by Defense Minister Diego Andres Molano and NATO Deputy Secretary General Mircea Gioana, emphasized cooperation on such non-traditional areas as climate change mitigation, Colombia's first NATO-brokered foreign mission will be to help Ukrainian forces clear landmines. This is an area where the Colombian military has much experience. Landmines have killed over 2,000 people in the country since 1990 and injured thousands more. But the ascendance of Colombia to MNNA and ITPP status has been met with outrage by Venezuela's government. After the ITPP announcement, Venezuela's defense minister, Vladimir Padrino, said that NATO was using Colombia as a pawn in its design to, quote, take over the world, unquote. Caracas announced this month, June, that it will hold an anti-NATO summit in the state of Táchira on the border with Colombia in parallel with the Western Military Bloc's upcoming summit later this month in Madrid. In February, Venezuela and Russia jointly announced 
that they were reviewing plans for cooperation in the military sphere. The announcement came as President Nicolas Maduro met with a Russian government delegation in Caracas. Venezuela's late leader, Hugo Chavez, had broached forming a South Atlantic Treaty Organization, or SATO, as an alternative to NATO. So here we have the uh, Colombia-Venezuela border emerging as a, uh, a new front line in the renewed Cold War between NATO and Russia. Rather disturbing. All right, so to sum up, you know, I am avidly rooting for Gustavo Petro in tomorrow's runoff, but I hope that in power he will chart a more independent course and resist throwing in his lot with Nicolas Maduro and, by extension, with Russia and China. Because while it's a whole other conversation that we're not going to really get into tonight, some other time, if listeners insist, but the human rights situation in Venezuela is also horrific. And, you know, it's funny. While the human rights situation in Colombia gets virtually no coverage in English, that in Venezuela gets at least some because Maduro is on the outs with Washington, and his abuses are therefore providing very convenient propaganda for the empire, whereas Duque is our son of a bitch, as the saying goes. So his abuses are out of sight, out of mind. But the position of the left up here in Gringolandia is to turn a blind eye to Maduro's abuses in a mere reversal of the double standard. And in fact, just as the International Criminal Court was closing its preliminary examination of Colombia last year, it opened one for Venezuela, which remains underway. And Venezuela remains, after a generation of so-called Bolivarian revolution, basically a rentier state, renting out its oil fields to foreign oil companies, even if they are increasingly Russian and Chinese companies rather than American. And Venezuela is much more of a rentier state than Colombia, which is also a significant oil producer, but as a much more diversified economy, I'll just point out. So here is the hoping that Gustavo Petro is elected tomorrow and that he, in power, will be able to break the continuing nexus between the official security forces and the resurgent paramilitaries, instate a meaningful agrarian reform, rein in the military and national police, and respect the autonomous powers and territorial rights of indigenous and campesino communities, break military ties with NATO, and chart a neither East nor West political course. Stay tuned. We will be continuing to cover events in Colombia on the counter vortex, whether anyone is paying attention or not. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Throw us just a buck or two per podcast, per weekly podcast. It'll really help keep us going. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex. Join the resistance. Happy Juneteenth, if you're listening to this in time. 
and rant on you next time.